0: Hello and welcome to KCBP-FM Radio Theater and another episode of Tales from the Pennybloods, The Skeleton Hand. Our story takes place in 18th century Paris, when gambling by a soon-to-be-married French army officer gets out of hand. He seeks money any place he can find it. Unfortunately, he's tempted into accepting it from a very unusual and ghostly source. Will he survive? What about his marriage? And what is it that everyone keeps finding inside that old chest? These questions and more will be answered in this latest episode, which promises to bring you a few laughs, a few chills, and even a bit of romance. The Skeleton Hand features Carl Bengston, Summer Braley, Jonathan Brandt, Haley Carpenter, Scott Davis, Raymond Mankey, Dean Medic, Julia Warren, and Felina Van Leeuwen. Based on an anonymous story from the 1843 edition of The Keepsake, this episode was written and directed by Arnold Anthony Schmidt. Raymond Mankey recorded, engineered, and mixed the show. And special thanks to James Costello, General Manager of KCBP-FM Radio. And now, enjoy The Skeleton Hand.
1: Our story begins in Paris in the fall of 1760. Night has fallen on this cold November evening, and most people have gone home to the warmth of their firesides. Workers who must rise early in the morning and return to their tasks, enjoy an hour or two of diversion and then sleep. For others, however, the night promises not quiet, but excitement. It is after dark that these people thrive traveling around the glittering city in their carriages, dancing until dawn at the balls, and gambling. It is in the house of the Marquis de Beauvoir that we find our hero, Jules Mongereau, an army captain of good family. He stands bolt upright at the roulette table, and if it weren't for the dashing men and beautiful women who surround him in the lavishly decorated room, you might almost suppose he stood reviewing his troops. But no, not work, but pleasure occupies his mind. Pleasure, that is, if he had been winning, which he has not.
0: Place your bets, place your bets. Madame Zemachos, place your bets. Here we go. Just a bit of luck is all I need. Me too, me too.
2: And this for me. You are really trying your luck tonight, Capitaine.
3: Well, I'm feeling good. Pardon my saying, Jules, but so far this evening,
4: your feelings have not been accurate predictors of luck. Your losses are staggering. I do not need you to remind me of my losses, my friend. He
2: means no offense, mon Captain. He merely cautions you. Sometimes when our bloods get hot, our brains get cloudy. We fail to think clearly.
0: I know what I am doing. Please just spin the wheel. A win for the house, no winners this time. <sighs> That's all for
3: me tonight. I can't stand another loss like that. Uh, me neither. I know when it is time to go. Uh, how about you, mon capitaine? Shall we leave the tables and head out for a nightcap? No, I am going to play one more speed. But, monsieur, I beg you. Come with us. Little Fifi will be singing at La Comedie. She's always a joy to behold. And the wine is
4: so sweet. Leave me alone, both of you. Place your bets, place your bets. Here, again, put all of these down. But, Jules, you
1: must not. Spin, I tell you, spin! All eyes focus on Jules' face, studying his handsome features, though his cheeks seem a bit pale due to the evening's excitement. Then the wheel spins again
0: and stops. Red 22. Red 22. Oh, no. It can't be. I am so sorry, monsieur.
4: But I could feel it in my bones. Poor stretch of
3: bad luck, mon ami. It could happen to anyone. Uh, that's true. It has happened to me tonight.
4: Yes, but I have lost quite a lot here. What do you say to that drink? I'm afraid I am in no mood for celebrating right now. Celebrating, no, but commiserating. I think I should be off. You would not find me pleasant company. Ah, Baptiste! I have the carriage waiting, Monsieur. Thank you, Baptiste. Good evening, gentlemen. I hope that tomorrow brings better luck for us all. To be sure, Lady Luck
3: is that most fickle of mistresses. She never sticks with anyone for long, nor does she abandon him forever.
1: A beautiful Paris morning in the Mondero townhouse. Sun pours through the curtains of the large windows that face the broad boulevard. Ornate furniture fills the high-ceilinged room, and tasteful paintings hang on the walls. Alone in the room, Jules' older brother Pierre, a Paris counselor, paces back and forth, a book in his hand, He smiles as he reads, expressing
5: agreement with every word. Yes, yes, but of course. The world is full of sorrow, it is true. But it is all for the best. Yes, for the good of us all. As the politician reads aloud to
1: himself, two women enter the drawing room. Pierre's elegant wife, Marguerite, wearing a quiet, cream morning gown, and her best friend, Lorraine, energetic and fresh in her deep green robe.
6: Your wedding will be quite the event,
7: Lorraine, my dear. I have no doubt. I am sure everything will be exquisite. Yes, my trousseau is almost ready. And, of course, the dress. Oh, you and Jules will present quite a handsome couple, I do declare. If only in our home life we could be as happy as you and Pierre. I will be satisfied. Of course you
6: will, my dear. Why should you not be? Well... But here is our model husbands now. No doubt ready for breakfast. Good morning, Pierre.
5: Yes, it is very good. Whatever are you doing? Rereading Candide. It is wonderful, I tell you, that Voltaire is a true genius.
7: What? Voltaire? But he criticizes politicians like yourself. And the clergy, too. His wit cuts like a knife.
5: Oh, that's just because people don't understand him. They take his sincerity for irony.
7: But it
6: is irony. How else could you consider the death of 30,000 people in the Lisbon
7: earthquake to be a good thing?
5: He does not say it is a good thing, just that it is the best thing.
7: Not for those poor lost souls, certainly.
5: No, of course not, not for them. But for the world at large.
7: But how
6: can that be?
5: We weep for their loss. Our sorrow turns to devotion. Devotion leads us to righteousness, righteousness to virtue and virtue leads to happiness. So all is for the best.
7: Unless you are killed in an earthquake.
5: Yes, that would be a misfortune, I admit.
6: You see things in a very peculiar light. All I can say is I'm glad I'm not one of those who must die in order to lead the world to righteousness.
1: Jules joins the party, though his washed out complexion and tired smile show him a trifle under the weather.
5: Oh, and now the set is complete. Here comes my dear brother. We can all breakfast together, my effervescent wife, my incorrigible brother, and his lovely fiancée.
6: I don't know how you can be so charming this early in the day, Pierre. Effervescent indeed.
5: Oh, I always find you so, mon petit chou. Good morning, Jules. I am so glad to see you this morning, Jules. I leave today for our uncle's chateau. I would hate to miss you and not have a chance to say au revoir. Safe travels, Pierre, and please give my regards to Comte de Germain. Oh, I certainly will. He's a dear friend of Madame Papadou, as you know, and an intimate Voltaire. The conversations are bound to be dazzling, and who knows, the great man himself might appear.
6: Oh, please don't make me any more jealous than our already am, I? You know I would love to accompany you. If only we didn't
7: have all the wedding arrangements to finish up. That's quite true, Pierre. I am keeping the poor woman frantically busy. I simply can't spare her for a minute.
5: I understand. Next time, we'll make a point of it. We'll all four of us go together.
6: Oh, yes, please. But, Jules, you look a little pale.
7: Are you all right?
4: After a beat too much wine, my head aches like an anvil under the blacksmith's hammer.
7: You visited the gaming tables, I take it?
4: Yes, another cause for pain.
7: Bad
6: luck again.
5: Oui, ma. Oh, that just goes to prove what Candide's philosopher says. This is the best of all possible worlds.
7: How do you figure that?
5: Yes, I would like to know myself.
4: As much as I can understand anything with my head pounding like this. what oh, it
5: really is quite simple. You went to the gaming tables and drank too much wine? Agreed. So you profited the winemaker, and you lost a great deal at the roulette table? Again, agreed. So I hate to admit how much. And that profited the economy. And of course, you
4: listened to music. Yes, now and then I do recall hearing a violin screeching
5: away. Musicians earning their keep. And now, you are in pain. Emotionally, physically, financially. Yes, all three. Agreed. Thus, as Candide's philosopher shows, your pain has proven beneficial to others.
6: Small comfort, benefiting the winemaker, the croupier, and the musicians.
5: Not only them. People come to the gaming tables dressed in their finest clothes. Thus, tailors and dressmakers benefit. They arrive in coaches with their pockets full of money and return home in those same coaches if they win. If they win, which I did not.
7: Some lose and throw themselves into the Seine to drown.
5: That's right, A boon to undertakers. Now you can jest. But understand, coach drivers and seamstresses do benefit. And
7: undertakers have mouths to feed, too.
5: The carriage driver supports the stable and blacksmith. The tailor and dressmaker spend money in fabric and notion shops. Everyone benefits. Everyone except me. Oh, I admit this offers small comfort to the individual. But he has the consolation of knowing that society in general benefits. Thus, Jules losing at the gaming tables provides the greatest benefit to the greatest number of people.
7: The best of all possible worlds.
4: But aren't I a part of society? How do I benefit?
7: You had the pleasure of playing at the gaming tables.
4: Aye, but it is only pleasure if I wean.
7: You would benefit even more if it taught you to stop gambling.
4: Oh, please do not start. It is only a
1: short stretch of bad luck. That is what you always say. The poets tell us the paths to true love are never easy. Think Troilus and Crescita, Anthony and Cleopatra, Hamlet and Ophelia. But wait, you might interject. Surely you go too far. Those romances all ended in tragedy. And this one, after all, has only just begun. I concede your point. Let's see how things turn out before rushing to any conclusions. Later that morning, Lorraine sits alone in the townhouse's library, reading. Then...
7: I hope I'm not disturbing you. No, please, come in. Has Pierre left for the Count's chateau already? Yes, he has just gone. What are you up to? I'm reading. Not Candide, I hope. No, a gothic novel, to take my mind off things. (laughs) I doubt you're doing a very good job. You are holding that book upside down. Oh, you are right. I'm so distracted that I did not even notice. But what is worrying you so much? Worrying me? Everything! jewels, his gambling, the wedding, our future together. Oh, Surely this is just a temporary obsession of his. I don't think so. When I first met him, he already had a reputation for gaming. In a soldier... It is an occupational hazard, and it has a certain kind of rakish charm. Yes, it does. His recklessness intoxicated me at first, and then, once he proposed, he did settle down a bit. He often takes you out on the town. You both enjoy dancing at balls and attending the theatre. Yes, the Paris nightlife pleases us both. And now he stays home with me, most nights, instead of drinking in cafés with his men so what is the problem then most nights is not all nights oh i see every once in a while well something like this happens gambling and losing at least it is not another woman no his affections do not seem to have strayed well that
6: is a relief any event still i do not know how you can stay so
7: calm I am not calm. I am furious. A vice like gaming is a burden to us all. And after we marry, we'll have additional responsibilities. He can't be losing his money like this when he has a family.
6: Yes, stories abound of wealthy heirs casting their fortunes away at the gaming
7: tables. But surely your love will cure him? Can a woman ever cure a man of his vices? I think the reformed rake is a character who appears on stage more often than in real life. But don't you believe that love conquers all? That is a myth all women of good hearts hold dear. But in my experience, it ever rings false.
1: That evening, darkness has fallen. The city seems somber as Paris church bells mark all souls Eve, And residents call to mind loved ones who have gone before them. Joys and regrets, good times and bad, the living remembering the dead. Not everyone, however, treats all souls Eve with respect. Some, like Jules, think only of pleasure.
4: Don't you see, Baptiste? I must return to the tables. The only way to make up my losses is to increase my stakes. But, monsieur, uh, that's madness. Not at all. Every time I lose, I must simply double my bet. Eventually, I will win enough to make me whole. But your losses, they will ruin you. One big win will pay for all
3: my losses. And if you don't win? I must. And remember, your fiancée, Mademoiselle Lorraine, your gaming unsettles her so. She'll understand after I wean my money back. Besides, tonight is the feast of all souls. You know it is unlucky to wager on a holy night. Don't be foolish. It is always wrong to gamble, but it is truly wicked to play on the night of all souls. One is always punished for it sooner or later. Nonsense. The curate of saint Roche told me the other day that he had exorcised a gentleman possessed by the devil, who, from his love of cards and to play, had offended
4: the dead by playing on this night. I am not superstitious, Baptiste. And I certainly do not believe in ghosts. Oh, neither do I, Monsieur,
3: but, but then who among us can really tell? When it comes to something like ghosts, their reality is unknown. Perhaps it is better to believe just a little in case they turn out to exist, after all.
4: That's absurd. Just meet me here with the courage in a few hours.
2: Good evening, mon capitaine. Monsieur returns to join us again this evening?
4: Yes, I thought I would try my luck once more. I hope you share our good
2: fortune. We have both been winning. Not much it is true, but better a small
4: win than a small loss. Nothing could be truer. I would like to join you at the tables, but I find myself a trifle embarrassed at the moment. Oh short of funds? Just temporarily. Play no more. If only I could borrow maybe a hundred Louis. I could play and win it all back. I hesitate to impose on our friendship, but Of course,
2: monsieur. My pockets are not deep, but I am always happy to help a gentleman in distress.
3: Me too. Who knows but that one day we may find ourselves in similar circumstances. Then we will be borrowing from you, mon capitaine. And I will gladly comply. Here you are. I wish you luck. Place your bets. Please place your bets. Put this for
0: me. Here for me. And all of this for me. No more bets, okay. madames and majors. No more bets. Okay, okay, okay. Ah, yes, I win again.
3: Me too. What a streak we are having. But
4: you, mon capitain... Not so well, my friends. My losing streak continues. What rotten luck!
1: Rotten luck indeed. But who can say how things will turn out in the end? Sometimes good fortune leads to destruction. Well, bad luck results in happiness. Life's funny that way, isn't it? Once again, our friends gather around the breakfast table. But wait, someone comes to the door.
3: Who's there? Where can you be? Oh, how very strange. Is everything all
4: right, Baptiste?
3: I can't really say, Monsieur. There's, There's no one here. Only this very old chest. A chest that has seen better days, to be sure. Well, bring it
4: in, man, and let's look into this mystery.
7: How extraordinary! What's this all about?
4: There's a letter attached. Let's see what it says. Who's it from? Henri Renault, an old friend from my university days. He was a bit of a wag, but then we both were. I hope everything's all right.
6: Oh, raise it, please. I cannot stand the suspense.
4: There is a letter with a torn sheet of paper. Monsieur... The accompanying chest with its contents is recommended to your honesty. Curiosity is a vice. To open it would be a crime. Take care or incessant misfortunes will fall upon your family. Have the chest placed in safety and deliver it up when its owner appears. Its owner? But who is that? Let me go on. Surely the letter explains. When the time comes, someone will come to reclaim this chest. You will recognize them because they will show you the other half of this paper. Until they do, you must not open it. And what does that half-sheet of paper say? It contains lines of poetry, but torn off in the middle. Hell always follows.
3: He who, listening only, will open this trunk. He must
5: run after death. But this makes no sense without the other half. What does it all mean?
6: You won't know that until the owner returns to claim the chest.
3: Still, hell, death. It doesn't sound
4: good. Look, here's a key. I simply must look inside and see what this is all about.
6: But the letter forbids you to open the chest.
4: Yes, it's true. So very strange. And from Henri.
7: Do you know him well, Jules?
4: Oh, certainly. Though it has been years since I have seen him. The last I heard, he had either won a great deal of money at roulette or lost a vast sum at cards. Though knowing Henri,
5: he probably did both. What an unaccountable occurrence. And at our very door. Surely he can't hurt to take a quick
4: peek.
7: Oh, Jules, you mustn't. You must
6: control your curiosity.
4: Perhaps you are right. Baptiste, can you carry these to the attic? Of course, monsieur. It is quite
3: heavy, monsieur. Quite heavy.
7: Whatever can this mean?
1: A few hours later, Jules and his fiancé sit together in the living room, but they present a curious sight. While ardent lovers sit side by side, Jules and Lorraine have placed themselves at opposite ends of the room. They sit stiffly in their chairs, books in hand. Their chairs face each other, but the lovers do not. At least not directly. Instead, they concentrate, or pretend to concentrate, on their reading. Finally, Lorraine puts down her book and breaks the awkward silence.
7: Jules, my dear, I think we must have a serious conversation. If we are to be married.
1: Eve?
4: Whatever can you mean, Eve?
7: We plan to spend our lives together. I think to do so successfully, we first need to agree on some ground
4: rules. Ground rules? Surely you jest. Not at all.
7: Marriage is a partnership, right? Well? Before joining any partnership, both parties have to establish agreement on certain points.
4: Yes, if they are forming a corporation, but not a marriage. Besides, we agree on everything. Do we not? Love, honor, respect? Of course.
7: But is that all? I am thinking about practical things.
4: Pray, proceed.
7: Well, for starters, I need my independence and my own money.
4: How can you doubt it?
7: I must have my solitude. Time to be alone when need be. I will want your company as well, of course. But sometimes I need to just be by myself.
4: I understand.
7: I must be able to go where I want, when I want.
4: In towns, the carriage is always at your disposal and in the country you have your horses.
7: And I must be able to see whomever I want.
4: Agreed. But please, no fops, no fools, no social climbers.
7: (laughs) Certainly not. You know, only the select frequent my salons.
4: Of course. I am entirely partial to those blue-stocking friends of yours.
7: Once we're married, I would like us sometimes to stay at our country estate. And also with my parents.
4: But indeed, what a perfect place to ride.
7: And you? What would make you happy?
4: Well, while we're on the subject of relatives, although I enjoy seeing your school friend Helene, her husband and his obsession with agricultural improvements drives me to distraction.
7: Yes. At dinner last time, he talked almost 40 minutes about a new plow he had just purchased.
4: 43 minutes. I timed him.
7: I will invite Helene to stay with us in town during the spring planting and fall harvest, when he will be most occupied in the country with their estate.
4: Perfect. My, you are devious. No wonders that I love you.
7: Well, I am glad that we have got everything settled.
4: Yes, that is good. You know, when we started, I thought perhaps this was your way of making me promise to give up gambling.
7: No, not at all. Not give it up entirely. I realize you need your amusements, but we must find a way for you to enjoy yourself without jeopardizing our family fortune. Can we do that?
4: How about small stakes, Twice a month.
7: Perfect. This has been a very fruitful little discussion. You know, I love you, but your gaming has left me uneasy. For our future.
4: Of course, I understand
7: i am so glad
4: i will begin immediately
7: oh thank you jules
4: right after i wean back my losses
7: what no you mustn't have no
4: cares my darling it is a simple matter no please
1: no i have a system i can't lose jules conversation with lorraine leaves him feeling vexed he knows she is right of course A family man cannot be betting the estate at the gaming tables. But still, if only he could win big just this one time. Consequently, that evening finds him in a desperate quandary. On the one hand, he feels driven to keep gambling, certain that his luck will change. On the other hand, he has no cash with which to play. Worse, he has borrowed, lost, and now owes money to his friends honor requires him to repay debts when asked. And that very afternoon, Jules had received a letter from Robert and Michelle asking repayment immediately.
4: Coffee, monsieur? No, thank you, Baptiste. If only I could get my hands on some ready money. I feel sure that if I return to the gaming tables tonight, I can wean back all my losses and send some. I told you not to gamble on All Souls' Day. Nonsense. Superstitious nonsense. That may be. But who can say? And now I have not only lost a great deal, but I must repay the gold I borrowed last night. One hundred louis. Ma foi!
3: But surely your friends will not require you to pay them back right away. That's
4: the problem. I have just had a letter. Michel and Robert have both had losses at cards and need some money immediately. Wherever will I find one hundred gold coins.
3: I wish you would forbear for a while, Monsieur. Wait a bit to give this bad luck streak
4: of yours time to pass. But don't you see? This streak of bad luck is a sign. A sign of good luck to come. Oh, but that's not logical. Of course it is. The more I lose, the more likely I am to win.
3: You and I both know that's not the way things work. Gambling
4: is always risky, monsieur. (laughs) Not this time. I can feel it in my bones. I would do anything. If only I could lay my hands on a little money. I tell you, I would sell my soul for a hundred gold pieces. Mon Dieu, do not say such a thing, even in jest. You're right, Baptiste. I'm just at the end of my tether. I simply must have some money, even if I must turn highwaymen and hold up travelers on the king's road. Calm yourself, please. But how can I? Well, I I ought not to say this, but
3: under the circumstances... Yes? What? There may be a way for you to find some money. Speak, I pray you. Immediately. Well, as you know, that old chest arrived in the house this morning for safekeeping. I was looking for a tool in the attic where it is stored, and I happened to bump into it. Oh, you did, did you? Completely by accident, I assure you. But anyway, what a surprise came to my ears when I heard the sound of coins rolling around in the bottom of the chest. By accident, you say? Well, at first by accident. But after I heard the sound of what could only be gold coins, I confess I did give the chest a little shake. A shake, eh? And... Now I am sure the chest contains gold. You did not by any chance happen to steal a glance inside. Of course not, monsieur. The servant who delivered it urged us all to stifle our curiosity and forbade us to open this chest.
4: That's right.
3: Besides, how could I? It is locked up tight with as firm a padlock as ever I've seen in my life. That may be, but I happen to have the key. Surely I do wrong in telling you this and tempting you. After all... Only trouble can come of opening that chest. The words on paper threaten all sorts of terrible consequences. On half the paper, the other half may predict joy and happiness for all of you. Monsieur takes pleasure in being disingenuous. Those words sound distinctly like a curse.
4: Oh, curses. Who believes in curses these days? After all, this is an 18th century, man. <laughs> Besides, what could possibly go wrong?
1: Jules, unable to resist the temptation, simply must know what lies inside that chest. Equipped with a candle and the key, he ascends the stairs leading to the attic of the townhouse. Higher and higher he climbs, as the bells of Paris sound. For a moment, the captain shivers with inward dread. He stops, but ashamed of his terror, resolutely continues his ascent.
4: It is dark as midnight in here. Luckily, I've got this
1: candle to light my way. Jules enters the room, which the family uses primarily for storage with only the flickering light of the candle to make out the dark shapes of furniture and boxes, he searches for the mysterious chest. His heart beats quickly and Jules begins to sweat a bit at the expectation of finding the gold. This will allow him to win back his losses at the gaming tables and return a wealthy man, or if not a rich man, at least one no longer in debt to his friends. I know that chest is around here somewhere, where could Baptiste have put it? Here
4: it is. Now for the lock. Mon Dieu!
1: look at the size of this lock. This key should do the trick, though. The key fits, but fails to turn easily. Back and forth, Jules struggles with the lock, but it remains stuck. This blasted lock! Frustrated, Jules slams his hand against the top of the chest.
4: Very well. Here it goes.
1: It is turning! It is turning! There! I've got it! Jules opens the chest. In his excitement, though, he accidentally drops the lid. As the lid falls, it blows out the candle. The room becomes pitch black.
4: Blast it! Now I cannot see a thing! Let me feel around and see if I can find that gold. I simply
1: must find it. What's this? Suddenly, the moon appears from behind the clouds and through the window casts a magical glow on the room, transforming the ordinary into the extraordinary. Benign household objects, an old couch, a dress, some lamps, take on an eerie appearance in the ghostly half-light. The phantasmagoric effect makes Jules even more frantic. Moonlight! Perfect!
4: I will find this at last. And now, I've got it! Gold!
1: But not so fast. Inside the chest, someone has arranged for a little surprise for our captain. As Jules fingers the coins, a human skeleton suddenly stands bolt upright. This is so unlooked for, so unexpected, that Jules gives a cry of terror. Mon Dieu, what's this? At first, Jules steps back in horror, wishing he had worn his sword, as if that would prove useful against his ghostly adversary. Away from me, you monster! Get away! In an instant, however, Jules calms down and feels ashamed of himself. Overcome by a feeling of horror and dread, the skeleton stands stationary in the chest. In the mysterious moonlight, it looks like a horrific tree planted in golden earth. Jules repents his boldness and the vile motive which has brought him to commit an action which at once seemed dishonest and downright sacrilegious. I don't understand. What can this mean? Jules hesitates. Should he simply leave the gold in return? But no. Tempted by the coins which he now needs so desperately, he again approaches the chest. He watches the skeleton with a look of mistrust and cannot take his eyes off the miserable object. He calms himself, breathing deeply, and thinks for a moment. A skeleton? Bah! It can't hurt me.
4: The letter said not to open the chest. This must be some kind of trick to scare off the curious. Well, I am not afraid. Skeleton or no skeleton,
1: I must get that money. Jules leans over and reaches into the chest. He tries to gather up the gold at the bottom without touching the horrible skeleton, which stands up teetering right in front of him. Finally, he jams his hands deep inside the chest and runs his fingers through the gold coins that fill the bottom. Gold! GOLD! Wild, almost frenzied, Jules takes out a large handkerchief and carelessly seizes up handfuls of gold coins. I have got it! I have got the gold! As Jules continues to stuff the coins into his handkerchief, the skeleton collapses and tumbles back into the chest. Mon dieu! The skeleton... Hastily grabbing with both hands, without even looking at the coins, Jules quickly stuffs another handful of gold inside the handkerchief.
4: This will drive me mad! I have got to get out of
1: here! Jules begins to panic. Whether from the mysterious moonlight and the stuffy air in the attic, the horror of confronting the human skeleton or even the agonies of his guilty conscience. Who can say? He stashes the handkerchief filled with coins into the pocket and hurries toward the door. At first, the doorknob sticks in his hand, and for an instant he fears that he'll be trapped inside with the skeleton. But no, he breathes deeply, struggles to relax, and tries the door again. This time, the squeaky hinges give way and the door opens. At last, I'm free! Free! Stepping out of the dark attic, Jules feels momentarily blinded by the light of the hallway. Then, frantic with excitement and terror, he makes his way down the hall. Back in his room, Jules experiences a series of powerful emotions. Joy and horror, remorse and shame. He collapses into his chair and tries to relax. What makes him feel this way? Is it superstition or a guilty conscience? Either way, the captain faces a moral reckoning. He reproaches himself for having committed an act at once dishonest and horrific.
4: What have I done? The letter said not to search the chest, and yet I did. I've succumbed to vulgar
1: curiosity. And I have stolen. Jules stands up and lights a candle. Then he looks out the window into the boulevard. The moonlight shines on the houses across the road and glistens in a puddle of rainwater left over from the afternoon shower. A carriage turns the corner and passes before him. Everything seems so ordinary. Jules smiles to himself. Has he really acted so badly? Wouldn't anyone in his situation have done the same thing? After a few minutes of thinking like this, the captain's self-justification gets the better of him.
4: What am I getting so upset about? After all, this is just temporary. I've not really stolen the money, only borrowed it until I can return to the gaming tables and win enough to pay these back. Certainly a gentleman must
1: pay his debts of honor. I really had no choice. Thus Jules, like most of us, justifies his poor decisions by examining them in the best light. Still, a lingering feeling of guilt remains and, after a while, he stands up and paces uneasily back and forth across the room. He stops suddenly, hearing a sound like bones shaking and rattling against each other in the wind. What's that? terrified. Jules listens carefully. Is someone in the hallway? He puts his ear carefully to the door, then suddenly swings it open in an effort to surprise whomever has pursued him. The sight that reaches his eyes fills him with terror. Oh no, it can't be. What does he see? Well, you might ask, a sight that would terrify even the boldest among us. The eerie moonlight casts a shadowy glow on a skeleton that stands upright in the middle of the hallway and advances toward him. The captain jumps back into his room, slams and bolts his door, and waits. The moment of silence seems interminable. Then, a knock at the door. Who are you? What do you want from me? There was no answer. Then, suddenly, a wheezy
5: voice breaks out. My hand, give me my hand, jewels. If you want my gold, all well and good, take it. But my hand, Of what use is it to you?
1: Can this be possible? The apparition knows his name? Jules hears no more. Yielding to terror, he faints away and collapses into his chair. For a while, our intrepid captain, overcome by a terrified horror, sleeps where he has fainted in his chair and only recovers his senses when his faithful servant comes to bid him goodnight. Baptiste, finding the door locked, commences knocking.
3: Please, just go away. But, monsieur, it is only me. Leave me alone, I say. Leave me alone. Why have you locked this door? Are you all right? Let me in. Oh,
1: Baptiste! Of course.
4: Thank goodness it is you.
1: Upon opening the door and entering, Baptiste sees with surprise his master's paleness and odd look. He asks Jules if anything is wrong, but receives only some mumbled words and a blank stare. Worried about what might have happened, the frightened servant begins to upbraid his master for returning to the gaming tables.
3: Oh, you have been out gambling again. No, I... uh... You're right as a ghost.
4: As a ghost? as it! As a ghost! But, monsieur... It is true that I am not feeling well, but it is not what you think. Though it actually may be worse. Worse? What
3: could be worse than gambling and losing? What have you done? I snuck into the attic and took those gold coins. How could you? I should never have told you. This temptation was too great. Oh, it is all my fault. But you threatened to sell your
4: soul, and now this, stealing. No, not stealing, really. Merely borrowing. I will return the gold once I have won back my money at the gaming tables. Then I can also pay my debts. But, mon
3: capitan, it is still not right. Moreover, you speak as though winning were a certainty. It is. I feel it in
4: my bones. Oh, but what's that? That? Oh, that's nothing. Nothing? For the
3: life
1: of me it sounds like bones. Dried bones. The word bones causes a shiver to run through Jules' body. He remembers Baptiste's tale of the gambler possessed by the devil. From time to time, he casts his eyes on the handkerchief full of gold on the chair.
3: But you are shaking, monsieur. Let me light the fire.
1: Jules shivers, recollecting the fearful events of the past night. But he attributes the apparition to his anxiety, a kind of mental fascination. Perhaps he imagined the whole thing. He cannot believe the skeleton really appeared. But still, he cannot bring himself to touch the gold.
4: Anyway, in that handkerchief you will find the
1: coins that I borrowed. Count them out, so I know how much I must pay back. Jules moves from the chair to the hearth and warms himself by the fire. Baptiste turns to obey and opens the handkerchief, only to utter a cry of extreme horror. Mon Dieu, what have you done? Baptiste, are you all right? I told you no good would come of taking this gold. Jules approaches his poor devil of a servant, who has fallen down on his knees, as pale as a corpse. There, on the floor, where it has fallen, lies the open handkerchief, and in the middle of the handkerchief, surrounded by gold coins, is the skeleton of a fleshless hand. Oh, monsieur, this is
3: abominable! But where
1: did it come from? From your gold. Jules thinks back to the moment when he opened the chest and begins to understand. When he sees the gold, he grabbed wildly and stuffed it haphazardly into his handkerchief. In doing so, he must have accidentally taken the skeleton hand without realizing it. Let me take that. Give me the handkerchief. But
4: what is it? It is nothing. Just forget it. Go prepare some old wine to help me sleep. I am particularly anxious tonight. Oui, monsieur. I do not doubt it. Go! Now!
1: Jules picks up the gold coins and skeleton hand, wrapping them all together in his handkerchief. Jules puts the bundle into the top drawer of his dresser, where he keeps his valuables. Baptiste hurries out to get his master's mauled wine.
4: I'm going to take this money back to the gaming tables and win... I can feel it in my bones! (laughs) I can feel it in my bones!
1: As you can imagine, Jules did not sleep well that night. He remains terribly upset by his gambling losses, and more importantly, by the mysterious appearance of the ghostly skeleton. He paces back and forth across the dining room floor. Then, finally, he grabs his hat and coat. Surely some fresh air will do him good. Heading downstairs, he leaves for a walk in the Paris streets, hoping to clear his head. Upset, distraught, Jules walks for miles, paying no attention to where he's going or what's going on around him. Suddenly, a voice stops him. Monsieur de Montjol. Oui? Who's that who calls me? Why, it is me, mon captain.
2: Robert! Oh, excuse me, I, I didn't see you. We haven't had the pleasure of your company at the gaming tables last night and we're wondering if everything
4: was alright. Oh, everything is fine. And I have the hundred louis to pay back the money I borrowed from you and Michel. Oh,
2: do not worry about that.
4: There is no hurry at all. But I received your letter that you both had losses and needed the funds immediately.
2: No, that is impossible. I have not won, it is true, but I have not lost much either. Moreover, I know for a fact that Michel is quite solvent. Better than solvent, since he had stroke of good fortune and returned from the gaming tables quite frightened with gold. (laughs) The lucky devil.
4: But I received this letter from you. I have it right here. It worried me so I've gone to extraordinary lengths to try to find you some money.
2: Let me see that, if you please.
4: Here it is. But look here.
2: That is not my handwriting. Not even close. Is it not?
4: But whose is it? Who could have sent it?
2: I have no idea, monsieur. Perhaps someone sent it as a joke? If it
4: is a joke, it is not a very funny one.
1: Baptiste is by no means the hardest working man in Paris, but still he does tire by nightfall. The events of the day have left him disconcerted, but he tries to put them out of his mind as he prepares for sleep. Settling down in his bed, he soon drifts off in a gentle slumber, and then he hears it. What is that? Who is making that racket? Who is there? I ask you, who
3: is out there? I am not afraid of you, whoever you are. You had better be careful now. I know you... I know you are out there. I am going to open this door. Aha! Got you. What? No one here? Oh my, just the wind. Me and my nerves. Shaken,
1: Baptiste returns to bed, but sleep eludes him. Tossing and turning, he simply cannot calm down. Then, suddenly, he hears sounds in the hallway.
5: Of what use is it to you?
3: What is that, again? How can I sleep with all this going on?
1: Baptiste opens his door, But what he sees terrifies him. There, before him, stands the skeleton. Moonlight casts a mysterious luminescence in the hallway, giving the bones an unearthly glow.
5: Baptiste. Baptiste. Who calls my name? It is me, Baptiste. Please give me back my hand.
3: What are you talking about? My hand.
5: What do you need my hand for?
3: Please, please, leave me alone. Just leave me alone.
1: The skeleton slowly approaches Baptiste, holding up its arm, an arm without a hand. Horrified, Baptiste backs away uneasily. Then, frightened almost to death, he hurries into his room and locks the door. From the hallway, he hears the ghostly skeleton's ghastly voice.
5: Sleep no more, Baptiste. Sleep no more.
1: Baptiste, after his terrible visitor, cannot sleep. He waits until his ghostly guest has gone, then races downstairs to see his master. Jules, upon hearing Baptiste's story, feels distraught and confused. Jules paces the floor anxiously, wondering how to get out of this mess. First, there is the chest with its gold, which he has stolen, though he prefers to think of it as borrowed. And what is he to make of this mysterious letter demanding payment of his debts? A letter that his friends never sent. But if they did not, then who did? And finally, there is the skeleton itself. Is it real? An apparition? A hallucination? Whatever can it all mean? I wouldn't
4: believe what you are telling me, Baptiste, if the same thing had not happened to me as well.
3: Oh, believe it, Monsieur, believe it. What a terrible situation. I hope you have learned your lesson.
4: I told you never to gamble on All Souls' Day. Oh, I have learned my lesson all right. I will never again gamble on All Souls' Day. You must promise. Promise? In fact, after what has happened, I do not think that I will ever gamble again.
3: Bravo. Mademoiselle Lorraine will be so pleased. People should earn their money by the sweat of their brows. Through their skill and hard work, not to win it at gaming tables, it is diligence and perseverance that leads to success and happiness, not luck and providence. You sound just like my brother Pierre when you talk like that. I must confess, I have listened to him talk from time to time and found him very wise for a politician. Yes, he is actually honest.
4: No mean feat in his profession. And yet by doing so, he accomplishes a lot of good. You have been listening to Pierre. Next thing you'll be telling me is that this is the best of all possible worlds.
3: I wouldn't say the best. But certainly, if you leave off gambling and pay dutiful attention to your fiancée, Mademoiselle Lorraine, this
4: will be a happy household. Well, no doubt you are right. I realize that however much I might win, It in no way compares with what I might lose.
1: The next morning, Pierre has returned and our two couples gather together for a late breakfast. A heavy air hangs over the room, however, as each attempts to keep the conversation light, at the same time knowing, or suspecting, that strange things have occurred. Although only Jules and Baptiste have seen and heard the skeleton ghost, The others notice the somber looks on their faces and their forced gaiety. Tension fills the room, although the reason why remains unspoken. The mysterious chest. Suddenly, a knock comes at the door and Baptiste answers it.
6: But who can that be?
1: Who indeed? The tall, thin figure of an exotic woman stands solemnly on the doorstep, dressed head to toe in the deepest purple, except for an unusual emerald amulet around her neck. She presents an imposing sight. Beautiful, perhaps, but more importantly, she has an aura about her, a power that seems to emanate from her very being. Her appearance throws Baptiste off guard.
8: Oh, uh, uh,
3: may I help you?
8: Is this a Monsieur résidence, is it not? Yes? Then I believe you have something of mine that I must collect. Is the master of the house at home?
3: Uh, Of course. Come this way. Uh, Monsieur, you have a visitor. Please, come in. But who is
8: this woman? My name serves no purpose here. You have received a chest?
4: Yes, so as a day.
8: I have come to pick it up. Can you get it ready? I am ordered to carry it to its rightful owner.
1: Of course. Jules hesitates, afraid that the stranger will realize he had opened the chest and tampered with the gold. After the events of last night, he had returned the gold and the skeleton hand to their proper place. But when he opened the ancient chest, he found it empty of its ghostly occupant. The skeleton had disappeared. What had happened to it? You can show me something to prove
4: ownership of the chest. Yes, here.
6: What does it say?
3: Que l'enfer a jamais poursuive avec colère celui qui n'écoutant qu'un désir curieux ouvrira cette malle et qui frappe des cieux doit courir à la mort pour unique salaire.
8: Hell always follows with anger, he who, listening only to a curious desire, will open this chest. Struck by heaven, he must run, as death is his only profit.
5: Mon dieu! Terrible words!
8: Yes, terrible indeed. And a warning to anyone who might dare to open this chest and look inside. And now, as the chest must be returned to its rightful owner and it's occupant surely you haven't disobeyed the letter's instructions and opened it me
4: no of course not uh, but but i uh, uh...
3: go on tell the truth monsieur you know what you've done you must admit it after everything that's happened you see that now you must tell the truth
4: yes yes I couldn't resist. Oh, I'm so ashamed. I have looked inside. What? Is that all? No. I also took some of the money that the chest contained.
8: Jewels? How could you? You mean you stole the money? No, no, of course not. I merely planned to borrow it. And where is that money now?
4: I put it back in the chest. I had a terrible vision. A vision? What I thought was a nightmare, but now I'm not so sure. It was so strange. Uh, Not really that strange, when you think about it. But you must tell me before I go mad with grief and anxiety. Why is that skeleton in the chest? A skeleton? Oh,
3: heaven help us.
8: What skeleton? To serve as a warning, Monsieur. Uh, To secure curious. But whose skeleton is it? That of a lost man. A man who gambled away his life, his love, everything of value in this world. How terrible! Can you please have the chest brought to us? Baptiste, bring down the chest.
3: Right away, Monsieur. With pleasure.
8: Let us look inside.
4: I don't see the point. I return the gold, every coin, and the... Well, we will not talk of anything else.
8: Please? The chest? If you insist. I insist. But first, no one but you has had access to the chest?
4: No, of course not.
8: No one could have tampered with it?
4: No, it has remained upstairs all
1: this time,
4: and I have the only key.
8: Well, then let us examine the
1: contents, together. The mysterious stranger stands aside as Jules crouches over the chest. When the key turns and releases the lock, the lid flies open and the skeleton stands before them all.
6: Yes. <gasps> What's this? For the love of...
5: Mercy.
8: Yes. Yes. This unfortunate soul risked everything of value and lost it all. Lost everything in this world, and perhaps in the next, though that remains to be seen. Perhaps, monsieur, you recognize him?
4: Don't be absurd. How could I recognize him?
8: Because he was your dear college friend, Henri
4: Renault. But what happened to him?
8: That which happens to all who stray from the path of honesty. Jules, overcome by the
1: appearance of the skeleton, struggles to maintain his composure. His old friend, with whom he shared so many wild adventures, has come to this end at
8: last, as must we all. Perhaps you should have a last look inside. A look? But what for? I know what the chest contains.
4: Please?
1: Jules puts his hand inside the chest, trying desperately not to touch the skeleton as he searches the bottom. Then, suddenly, his fingers come across something surprising. But what's this?
8: Why, it is a letter. A letter, you say?
1: But
4: that's quite
8: impossible. What is or is not possible lies beyond the ken of mortal man. Perhaps it is best if you read what it says. Read it aloud, since in one way or another, it affects us all.
4: There were in this chest one thousand gold coins. One hundred have passed into the hands of a third person. My wish is that he employs them as he chooses. The Hand of Providence has done all this. Give the rest of the money to those who need it most. But who wrote this?
8: Don't you recognize the handwriting?
4: No, not really.
1: Wait. Yes, I do. Excited, anxious, perplexed, Jules digs his hand deep into his pocket and removes the letter demanding repayment of his gambling debts. The letter he thought came from Robert and Michelle, the letter they denied sending. Unfolding the paper carefully, he opens the sheet and compares the handwriting with that of the letter they've just removed from the chest. The curves of the letters and the shapes of the words match exactly. It can't be. I don't
4: understand it. Jules, my dear, what's wrong? The letter, it is signed Henri Renault. Crest his soul. But what can it mean? I don't know. And
8: look at the date. It was signed today. Oh then, it seems our occupant has delivered his message.
7: The occupant?
8: You mean Yes. Maybe now he can rest in peace. If you keep your promise and stay away from the gaming tables.
4: After this, of course I will. And some money.
8: You must obey his wishes.
4: I can repay my debts, but as for the rest. Surely, we can easily find people deserving of assistance.
7: It is a strange turn of
6: events. At the same time, though, it has all worked out for the best.
5: Yes, very much for the best. As I've said so often before, this is
0: the best of all possible worlds. We hope you have enjoyed this latest episode of KCBP-FM Radio Theater and the tales from the Bloods: The Skeleton Hand. This episode featured Carl Bengston as Baptiste and Michelle, Summer Braley as the narrator, Jonathan Brandt as Robert, Haley Carpenter as Marguerite, Scott Davis as Pierre and the skeleton, Raymond Mankey as the croupier, Julia Warren as the mysterious stranger, Dean Medic as Jules, and Felina Van Leeuwen as Lorraine. Arnold Anthony Schmidt wrote and directed The Skeleton Hand, based on an anonymous story in the 1843 edition of The Keepsake. Raymond Mankey recorded, engineered, and mixed the shell. And special thanks to James Costello, General Manager of KCBP-FM Radio, for his continued help and support. If you enjoyed our show, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast at www.tellsfromthepennybloods.org. You can also follow us on Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Mastodon.